Welcome to the Eureka Moment. My guest today is Lori Halloran. Um, this is a, a fun discussion for me because I've known you for some time now, did a, a lot of work over the years. We've done a lot of work with your teams. Um, we were just chatting a little bit before we officially got started here about some of the things you're seeing in the evolution of your business and how it mirrors very much what we see in some of the data that we work with on the behavioral side. Um, but that, that being said, um, I, I also think it's interesting um, because of, you know, in our industry, in the biopharma device industry, your brand, you've created a brand. You're someone that, as I, you know, go into all my clients, they all know you mm-hmm. and they all know you and you've worked with all of them. So there's just a tremendous amount of overlap in the path that I've taken. And I run into a lot of everybody knows Lori Halloran. So I'm very pleased to have you here. And uh, I think this is going to be a, a fun discussion. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting that, that you say that because I obviously don't know everybody, but that, that means that we have a really good brand, which it's I'm really brand. happy about. Yeah, your name's out there yeah. and everybody knows, Yeah, um, you know, and I get the, well, I met her once or we yeah. work with so-and-so from her team. Yeah. But, uh, but that brand, you got to be pretty excited me. about that. Yeah, I know you're, you should be, you should be excited about yeah. that. So uh, I always like to start out with giving everybody a little bit of grounding of where you're from, because most people don't know the two of us. So they're going to get to know us in okay. this discussion, but okay. talk us, talk to me a little bit about where you're from. Well, I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I was in the days where you were either a nurse or a teacher. And since I was good at science, I was encouraged to be a nurse. I really didn't have any kind of direction of where I wanted to go. Um, as soon as I started in nursing school, I realized I really don't like sick people. <laughs> so it was really hard. Um, I, I liked the pediatric part of it. So I worked in pediatric ICU for three years. And then I moved to Boston. And I moved to Boston to get out of nursing. Didn't have any idea what that meant. Um, I answered an ad in the newspaper that said RN research 50% travel. And I thought because it was 50% travel, there was probably a company car involved. And I really <laughs> needed a new car. <laughs> and that is absolutely how I got into clinical research. The first, the first real job that I would, would, be, would be worth talking about was um, in the early days at ParXL International. Okay. They had 40 people. And I worked... What year would that have been? Uh, it was 1988 or seven. Um, so it was okay. very much the early days. Yeah. Um, there was also an enormous pandemic going on, but it was HIV. So I spent months out in California collecting some of the data from one of the very first drugs that got approved for HIV. And it made me feel like what I was doing was making a difference in the way that nursing never had. So I was hooked. Um, when I got, when I, when we finished that project, which was, it was a huge project, literally the FDA was sitting at the next table over waiting for us to finish so they could double, uh, you know, audit the data and, and then and pull it in. Um, I started to realize that everybody that I was working with didn't have any idea what they were doing. So I went to a VP in the, in the mm-hmm. clinical department and suggested that I start doing training. And he wanted to know what I was going to change 
So I made up some numbers. I, you know, how about we bring the, the error rate down from 98%? Right. And I bought myself a training job. And the really big lesson with that, which I've carried through all along, is that I have the ability to see what doesn't exist but should. Interesting. I want to go back to something you said. Yeah. You said you were hooked. Yeah. Right? What was the hook? Because you started out by saying, I realized I didn't like patience, right? And so it, was, it, was it making a difference because of the, the insight that was being garnered from collecting the data? Yeah. Um, it was making a difference in the world. That's okay. really what, what really inspired me. So it's the big difference, not the difference. at the patient level, yes. next to bedside. Yeah. It's, it's having a monumental impact on society. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, um, the patients, you know, if they got better, they got better and they went home. I wasn't able to make any decisions because I was a nurse. Okay. I wasn't a doctor. And I should have gone to medical school. But when I started thinking about medical school, I thought to myself, well, I can't do that because I want to have kids. And you can't mm. be a doctor and, ha and a mother at the same time, which is it's hard completely to do not true. It's hard to do right. both, right? Parkcell had me traveling through Europe every month for two weeks. And I didn't want to be in Europe when I had my first kid. So that's really what I start, how I started the company. So it was a lifestyle. It was around it was lifestyle, totally lifestyle, controlling your time. And didn't really have an idea of what I wanted to do. And when he was five months old, I realized that, you know what, you really need a job because you need to pay for daycare. Mm. So I took a job in a biotech company. It was r relatively early stage. It was public. And I was one of five people on the management team. And everybody knew what they were doing. So we had a plan. We, we got the data for the drug. We had a lot of issues with the drug. There were a lot of safety issues. We, we worked through them to get rid of the specter of safety. Mm. And then we licensed the product to a big pharma. When you do that, you're left with nothing to do because they take it away eventually. Right. Now I was pregnant for number two and I knew that I needed two daycares. So I needed to go find a job that had a bigger pipeline and was probably going to be longer um, mm. to be around that wasn't planning on licensing out their product. So when I started, um, I interviewed, took the job and didn't start until... Um, I was done with my maternity leave, but I needed the money right. for daycare. So I started contracting before I started full time. And I took my three week old to work. So you were doing contracting clinical research. I was contracting as the head of the department. Okay. They desperately needed the, the, per, the, you know, the director level person there. Um, I brought the baby with me. Um, the older guy was in, daycare at that point. So what was the, what year was that? That was 2000. Okay. So what was the response to that? Well, they need, they needed me. So, so they, were they, okay. they needed to do what I was okay with doing because they needed me right away. And right. I didn't really want to go in until January. He was born in the middle of October. Um, but, but what I ended up realizing as I got more and more into the company was that they should have had somebody there a long time before me, and they didn't. They had hired a physician 
directly from the emergency room. She was in her residency. They had a chief medical officer who had been an oncologist at Sloan Kettering. There wasn't anybody there who knew drug development. And what I started realizing as I got to know the company better and better was that they hadn't really done everything right. Um, there Core were processes, really big holes problems. In their, their, their strategic understanding. What A needs lot to get of done. holes. Okay. And and I ultimately came to the conclusion that if they didn't fix the problems, they weren't going to be successful. But they didn't want to hear that. Hmm. They they thought I was uh, I had a bad attitude because I had all these things that I I, I pointed out that needed to be fixed. Right. So that and was there, the that arrogance was, of of two clinicians, right? And well, it was the, it was more the management team because the management team didn't know clinical development. Okay, and that's a really big lesson. A lot of early stage companies they don't know clinical development; they know science, and they might know business and finance, but it, clinical development is a whole different ball game. Well, that's you and I were talking and. You know, you've always been great in supporting the IBE, and you've you've covered a lot of the regulatory just sessions that we do. Right. And you know, they the students were coming out today saying, "Wow, I didn't know that, and right. I didn't know that, and I know didn't know the difference between the therapeutic path versus a device path, right. and that the terminology is different, and you and there's there's different factors. You get, you know, there's different pathways, different timelines, etc. But yep. it's there's a lot of nuance to it, and it's dynamic. Well, and if you don't have a plan, and the plan has to be created with deep knowledge of what the regulatory environment is and what the competitive, you know, what the comp- competition looks like. Mm. So if you don't have a plan, you waste enormous amounts of time and money. And that's the strategic regulatory piece. So when I realized that there had, n- had been no plan and they had spent hundreds of millions of dollars and they really weren't gonna have any data, that would, that would pass FDA's scrutiny. That was when I decided to come back to the company and have a completely different focus, which was to create a development team that could support those early stage companies so they wouldn't make as many mistakes. So this is the first? That's, this was this. the rebirth of Halloran Consulting. Okay, okay, so now. So now I had a really good, a good idea of what was needed and my youngest was two. So at least I had daycare. <laughs> okay. Um, and so that was really what I started out to, to, to plan to do. And that was the end of 2001. Okay. Um, we were in an office in an unfinished half bathroom, which we called the Closet of Doom. And I was there by myself for a couple of years. And then I needed to hire people. So we moved down to the basement, right. which was also unfinished. My ex-husband doesn't finish much, which is one of the reasons he's an ex. <laughs> um, and then we moved to an apartment next door. So I had 12 or 14 people in a flat in Brighton. How did you, did you fund it, self-fund it? Yep. And you just, you know, like just roll up your sleeves, get a client, yep. get some fees moving, yep. bring people on I and just Just work really hard. Um, I build time. Everybody I worked with, I didn't have employees. I had contractors at the time. Right. Um, because Mostly because I didn't really understand what I needed to do to, to, to process payroll. <laughs> there weren't that many, you know, right. payroll for hire, build.com kind of companies out there. there right. They, they didn't exist. So I had independent contractors. 
until we got big enough where one of the people that I really wanted to hire said, no, I need health insurance. I want to be an employee. So then we had to figure that out. So we figured out how to, how to bring in, you know, somebody who could run the, the business end of things. Right. I was almost always focused on networking and selling because, you know, after four or five years, I, I was starting to become known. When you're running the firm, that's what your job is, right? Right. It's, you, get, right. you bring the business in. Right. You're the fur bear. Everybody else, you know, exactly. gets to eat what you kill. So I ended up at that time, this was like the mid 2000s. Um, I realized that what, what I really needed to do was expand my network so that investors and C-level folks knew who we were. Mm. So I, I scheduled as many informational meetings with, with VCs yeah. as I possibly could. And I started looking to try to speak as much as I could um, so that I would, the name would become known. Right. Um, and that was a, a massive amount of it was through speaking and writing mm. because it's free. Right. And, and, and it's a way to get your name out there. And it's a, that, so you start the firm, you have these contractors, um, you're, you know, finding a client here, client there, slowly building it. Uh, when did it start to resemble a company? Like when did it start to take shape that it now it's not in an apartment, yep. but it's now? We, right, coincidentally with the, the, the big financial crisis. Okay. Because we had been around, you know, seven, eight years by that point. And if a company had money, they didn't want to hire. They wanted to get it done without the burn rate. Right. So we had met enough VCs and we had gotten our name out there enough so that we started getting phone calls um, from companies that wanted, they wanted strategic regulatory, they wanted operational regulatory, they wanted clinical development, but they didn't want to hire a team of 10 people. So you've always had those three segments from the very beginning. Yeah. And those are the three segments that are still defined your offering to this day. Oh, that they, they are th- the three major. Those are the number one reason we get called. Right. But we, as our clients have matured, one of the things that I, I did, again, kind of instinctively, was I, I tried to create a, a really strong network, a community, so that we would offer the opportunity to bring people together so they could share what they were doing and what they knew because they tend not to do that very much. They're very heads down. Within the client or within on a broader all of spectrum? our clients. So you had clients cross pollinization? Yes. Okay. So we started having breakfasts. We started going to conferences. We, these are still continuing now. Okay. Um, but we would bring together the heads of clinical development so they could have a topic of choice mm. and they could talk to their peers. And that was a main way that we would get clinical business and quality business. So quality systems, audits, running clinical trials, helping select vendors, all of those kinds of things. We positioned ourselves as not a CRO because there's a million of them out there. Right. And it's, it's a, both a crowded market and they have very much a vendor mentality. So one of the things that I tried to instill in every single person that I ever hired was you're not a vendor, you're a partner. Mm. So don't act like a vendor. Don't wait to be told what to do. 
speak up, and if you see something that needs to be done, point it out. Because often we're dealing with people who don't know what we know. Right. So trust in yourself. The other thing we did was we didn't really hire a lot of people from service providers. We hired people from biotech companies and medical device companies. Well, why was that your choice? Because they, they are used to t- taking control and getting things done and making it happen. They're not waiting to be told what to do. And they look more like the people that the company would hire if in exactly. fact they built it themselves. Exactly. So the fractional de- head of development or the head of regulatory was what we were selling. Mm-hmm. You can get this person for you know t- half time, no more than half time, or we can figure out exactly what you need and then we can describe what we're going to do in a proposal for you. Right. Um, that is still to a great extent the, the work that we do. But we've moved beyond clinical and regulatory because the, the clients have matured over time mm-hmm. with this networking, you know, this, this bringing the community together. And as they matured, we matured to offer them the things that they would need, which is in, it's a very big cross section of activities. It's help us grow our organization. What do we need? Who do we need? How do we structure it? What kind of infrastructure do we need? What kind of quality do we need? And now in the last year and a half, it's been help us adopt technology. So because every clinical trial mm. in the world was, you know, in absolutely in frozen state with, with COVID. Right. So how do we continue to have business continuity by decentralizing our trials? So there's so much in in that what you've just said. Um, my first question that comes to mind is this: um, How do you differentiate yourself from the CRO from a quality perspective? Meaning, you know, CROs say come in and we're turnkey and we're going to do this, and you know, at the end of the day, you're offering a person to do and perform a function and a service. Yeah. How did you differentiate in the quality side? Because you definitely are, you know, you do have that reputation for having high quality, really good people. And you know, the CROs don't have that same reputation in large part. Well, one of it is only hire the best. So we don't, we don't do volume. We really hire people that understand the culture, understand how to navigate, understand that they are the person that's going to be engaged with the client. And often the client will call back. If the client leaves, the head of development or chief medical officer goes to another company, mm. they call us up and say, hey, can we have Sheila? So it's the pe- it's totally the people. Okay. And that's really the origin of that is they have to come from a biotech company or a medical device company. They have to come from a sponsor company. What CROs tend to do, and the, you know, I say this because I worked in one, is they hire and then do on-the-job training. They tend not to hire incredibly experienced people. Right. Because right. it's all about volume. Well, because strategic is such an element of what you guys do, CROs are implementing. In a large part, right. they're implementing. They're giving guidance, and, and but it, it's not as strategic. You know, I, I want to also go back to something else you said. You said, we help them grow their organization. 
So is that growing strategically around their R&D, their, their idea yeah. of how they move from, you know, you've lived this for a long time, product orientation mm -hmm. to a therapeutic orientation, mm -hmm. understanding competitive landscape changed dramatically when you move from a product focus to a therapeutic focus, yes. understanding, you know, where do you grow once you've, when, you've, when you own a therapeutic area. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that and how you moved from a service provider supporting a product to a more strategic partner. So what a lot of companies do poorly is strategic planning. They are thinking only about their lead program and getting their lead program to proof of concept. What we started, the, the questions we started to ask were, how long do you want to be around? What's your overall mm. business plan? Are you looking to, to grow and be a portfolio company that's ultimately going to commercialize because you grow the company differently than if you're looking for, you know, proof of concept data and then you're going to sell it. Mm. So we started asking those questions. And normally that would be at least the chief medical officer, um, but sometimes in, and more and more the CEO. Right. And if the CEO had the goal of becoming a commercial company or at least going to late stage, at a certain point in in time when your trials are going to go really large or you're going to have many of them, it doesn't make financial sense to outsource everything. Mm -hmm. And we have that kind of secret information, but it's not secret. It's, it's looking at the complexity of the product, mm -hmm. the complexity of the studies, where they want their footprint to be, um, how long they want to go before you know, they're thinking of an exit. Right. And, and the entire environment has changed because there's so much money out there. So it, it doesn't work where you get to phase two and then Pfizer buys you anymore. Mm -hmm. Because if you raise $100 million in your Series A, you're going to go further. Right. Um, and it, that, so I, that really, to me, is what drives this. Okay. And that's also what drives a lot of the issues that we have right now as an industry, especially locally, because if you were going to go to phase two and then you were going to give, sell your product to Glaxo, you didn't need people who knew how to commercialize. You didn't need no. people who had to do large global studies. Now you do. Well, you know, for a long time, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, the, inflection, the ultimate inflection point is at that phase two, where you've got some yeah. phase two data before you actually know if it's going to get approved. Yep. And there's speculation, this could be really big, right? Yeah. That's, that's like that sweet spot for it, it's, transacting from an investor yeah. perspective. It, well, it is, but then more and more, it's a platform with multiple potential directions that could be developed as indications. It's not just one product, one indication. So that's the secondary part of this isn't going to get, we, we aren't going to license this off and we'll be done. We'll all take our, our blocks and go to another company. Right. So both of those things have made a big difference. Yeah. Well, and it's the platform technology. The question is, did they develop multiple indications? Did they focus on one indication and how much data they have that substantiates that yep. the platform's legit right. and it's not a one trick pony. Right. And then, you know, if, if, even if you had a platform, if you had one leading product, but you didn't have the money to develop it, you'd still be kind of stuck. So right. it's, it's a little bit of a, a chicken and egg thing where it's 
you you are able to raise an enormous amount of money because you have the potential to go in in a, a large different a set of different directions. Mm. But that's strategic drug development planning, right? And that's what we started off doing, and we've only grown in that respect tremendously. Like we now have a strategy and program leadership group, and they get called in. They get called in a lot of times in in investors both VCs and PEs, or in spin-outs in academia, what should we do? So that this founder just comes and says, tell us what we need to do. So how, when you're looking, this fascinates me, this is the geek in me. So when you look at how you weight the strategy, how much of what you're doing is really around the regulatory pathway, the economics of the regulatory pathway, the timeline associated with it, potential inflection point, threats so on the regulatory side versus the market potential the market opportunity where is that all part of the equation or are you guys focus more on the regulatory path to approval versus the commercialization and the, and the potential once commercialized it's more the regulatory path to approval but more and more people want to know what the commercial um, potential is and we don't do the commercial work but we're thinking about starting to get into it yeah, where where you look at the landscape and you not pricing and reimbursement and all that that's just a completely different animal but you know what are the high level numbers that you could go after right so that's really an interesting cuz part of what we get here at the IB is helping the inventor understand both right like you have to understand right. both and what we say to them is this um if you need to develop your regulatory pathway, you go to Halloran, you get them to give you the strategic insight on yep. the regulatory side. But then you jump out and you talk to somebody that has the commercial understanding. We yep. had Lori Geary here from Santa Fe who did a wonderful presentation on you know, the, the reimbursement landscape and yep. third-party payers and understanding reference countries and how that's affected on the reimbursement side yep. and all of those good things, right? Yep. Good things, complicated factors. Um, but... It's all part of this equation. And to your point, networking now at that level could be very interesting. Yeah. Where you have the regulatory people talking to the commercial people. Yep. And you start to figure out, well, what's the entirety of the story as opposed to understanding thoroughly a few chapters? Yeah. And if you're going to be really strategic, you have to understand the whole story. You, you, you can't just look through one, chapter one through three and then think you're going to have a winning molecule and a winning market. Um, and the investors are a lot more mature and a lot more discriminatory mm. if you don't have that. So, and you know, and, and I, you know, the science has matured, but it's hard to know whether it's the science that's matured or the massive amount of influx of capital that's matured the science. Well, and we are also in a very unique time with COVID because there's been a tremendous demand for a solution yeah. in a very short period of time. Yeah. And, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier, uh, what, maybe a handful of compounds that were in this space and now there's 86 yeah. different assets being developed yep. for COVID, right? So at least 86, at least the last time somebody did a count and told me. I haven't well, looked and, at that. and those compounds, they were a year ago, year and a half ago, they were all doing an emergency submission. And I mean, we had call after call after call, can you help us to go for an EUA? And 
you know, we were, I thought at the beginning of COVID, I was really nervous because I thought we were going to have to lay people off. And what ended up happening instead was we just were in immense demand, which was great. I was really happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really, it's, we've really turned into a different company since then. So it's really, it's really been fantastic. Interesting. Yeah. So I want to take you down a little path, a different path for a little while here. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the evolution of the organization, the leadership. We were chatting a little bit about this. Yep. This is a, a, an area that I'm really interested in. But talk a little bit about uh, your leadership team because it's a unique leadership team yep. uh, that you predominantly have. You have many women yep. that work for you. Um, Talk a little bit about that evolution because it wasn't always that way and it's evolved now. And talk about some of the things that you're finding with sort of the dynamic that's playing out in the organization itself as a result of the change. Just to give a little context, I I am still the founder and CEO. Um, I was very externally focused up until the middle of last year. Um, We had five people on the leadership team. Now we have four other than me, um, all women, chief development officer, CFO, chief client officer, and VP of business operations. Um, what we have learned over the last year and a half is that we all have incredible strengths and we should play to each other's strengths. Um, as, a, as a group of women, we trust each other, we defer to each other, um, we don't get in each other's way. We don't micromanage each other. Um, we volunteer the updates, and we are not afraid to challenge. And I said, I've said multiple times to them, we are all equals on this team. There's nobody who's more important. Um, I need to know what you think because I don't have the expertise on the PNL. Mm. Um, so that just that. Um, environment and the really open and collaborative environment have helped them to completely shine. It's just amazing. So I shared with you, um, and we haven't updated this data in a while, but it's something that we're looking to do now. We're actually creating, um, we're actually creating a research environment within Eureka Connect um, to do this in a more in-depth way. But some of the data that we've seen over the years is that uh, if you took women leaders, successful women leaders versus successful men, um, the women cohort tends to have a higher social skills score. So uh-huh. they develop deeper, stronger connections. Mm-hmm. Not dramatically higher, but higher. Mm-hmm. They tend to have higher reward scores. Reward mm-hmm. measures feedback relative to performance. So women are much more interested in where they stand relative to each other. Mm-hmm. Did I do a good job on that presentation? Mm-hmm. You know, geez, maybe you weren't that wasn't as good as I would have expected from you. That feedback, their, 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 their desire to have it is slightly higher. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, and you talked about this a little bit before we went live, is that women have a slightly lower competing score. Mm-hmm. They're not as aggressive. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel that they have to win at all costs. Mm-hmm. And they tend to, because of the other two scores, they tend to want to win with others mm-hmm. as opposed to win for self. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like from what you've been telling me, this is what you're seeing literally play out before your very eyes. I am. And I, I don't think that there's any one specific thing that, that we've done as a team. Um, I think COVID 
made us feel like we needed to be one team, one dream, and work really closely together. What we really wanted to do was protect the company. All of us wanted to protect the company. But they all, they all came to their jobs, and I've learned this over the course of the last year and a half from, their, from them telling me this. They came because of me. And so in my mind, I'm still gonna set the tone for how we work together. And I've never really been competitive. I'm much more competitive with myself. But that changed a lot when we, when we reconfigured and the five of us became a team. They, I now can look back and see that they did take direction from me saying, we, we are in this together, we have to make this work together. No idea is a bad idea. And we do give each other feedback, both in, in live meetings together mm -hmm. as well as in, in individual meetings, which I'm really happy about. It doesn't mean we don't like men um, because we have some fantastic men. I was literally talking to somebody who left because he had a new baby um, six months ago, and he, he's like, it's like a family. I miss it so much. I want to come back. Right. <laughs> which made me feel fantastic. But that's, that's very much the, the uh, culture we have is as a family. Now, you could say that because we're all mothers, we all have kids, we all have two kids, which is kind of interesting. Um, we act like these are the people that we have to take care of instead of compete with. Wait, so I want to go back to words you used yeah. that really hit me. You said they felt like they had to protect the mm -hmm. company. Protect it from what? Help me understand that thinking because you didn't say grow the company or build the company or develop the company. You said protect the company. Um, protect from, I mean, COVID, COVID threw a wrench into everything for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. My biggest worry the day we shut down was, oh God, we're gonna have to lay people off because every single clinical trial has stopped. How are we going to make sure that we don't have to do that? Mm. So it's protect and shepherd through the last year and a half. But you know, people do really well under intense circumstances. Now, would it be the same if we didn't have COVID in the in the last year and a half as much as you know our internal changes as much as our external changes? I don't know that. But we've ha we've spent a lot of time together. We spent you know, a day a month in my backyard so that we could hear from everybody and, mm -hmm. and see what everybody wanted to do to grow the company. It wasn't me that's gonna dictate because I can't do it all. And, and I've been really honest about that and really open about, you know, where I'm good and where I need help. Mm -hmm. So I really think that they took my lead in that respect to be able to be vulnerable. Well, you have, in, in my experience, and uh, you know, I did a lot of work with assessing your teams and your leadership. Um, there's a lot of continuity at the top of the company. I mean, there's a lot of people, you've had a lot of turn with the younger people. Yep. Um, and I'd be curious to your thoughts on that, if that's changed over the years. Uh, but, uh, but at the top, um, I know, you know there's, there's people that have been there. 10 years. Yeah, and, yeah. And, they're, and they're there and they're, yeah. they've been there a long time and they've helped you to build this and they've been through the ups and the downs. Talk a little bit about 
that versus like, what are you seeing? Cause everyone has a hard time with the, at the lower levels of the organization with continuity and keeping people, you know, people, it's their first job or their second job. And, you know, so we have made some changes with the, with the lower levels of the organization. And this was, again, I, I looked back at what, what happened at Park Excel when I was there, we brought in people whose job it was to manage the younger people who were earlier in their career to manage them and train them and grow them and help them get to where they wanted to get to. And as soon as we did that, our lower level turnover dramatically decreased. So you started investing more in them. Yes. I mean, you invested when, when we were doing the early work with your company, you assessed and did training for all of those people. But that was one of the problems that mm-hmm. I saw was that those people, um, they were getting little bits, yep. but they felt... Um, they, they felt like they didn't know where to go. They didn't even know exactly. what to do. They didn't exactly. even know who to ask, mm-hmm. right? And yep. because of the nature, the, the, the decentralized nature of what you do, there wasn't any continuity or connection to the mothership. Well, and any time they would get put on a project, it would be a brand new set of people that they wouldn't know. And the, and the person who led the project was much more concerned about the client. And if they didn't know the junior person, they might not even want them because they didn't know if they could trust that they would do what they needed to do. So putting in this line management, this you know, um, um, consulting ops is what we call it, we are now able to hire into that group and the two managers of the group are able to assess who's the best fit for this project and if there are gaps, close the gaps. Mm. So it's really made a big change. And now there's, you know, you go through level one through four, grade one through four, and then you make a choice and you graduate from the group into one of the practices. Okay. But now you have the skills and you've worked on those kinds of projects. And it doesn't mean that you're stuck because a lot of people that are early in their career want to be able to explore different things. Right. So that's a really big attraction for us to bring in um, people that are earlier in their career. Because if they're working in a biotech company, they might have only one product that they can work on. Right. If they're working in a bigger pharmaceutical company, they've already been kind of pigeonholed into a therapeutic area. Mm-hmm. So we give them the chance to, to move around and explore and find out what, what, what they really like to do. And then they're not even stuck doing it. We had one consultant this winter who Sorry, I don't know what season it is, um, who's this spring who was like, she was kind of burned out and doing external management consulting kind of work. Mm-hmm. So we repurposed her and now she's doing internal work, helping the company figure out the best way to grow. So she's a happy camper because right. we paid attention to her. Um, and, and that's what I would like to say is probably the biggest thing that we do well. We don't, people are not commodities. We, we really care about our people. That's right. everything that we have. That's changed a lot in the last few years. Well, I think I would say when I first met you, I think you always cared deeply about the people. I think what you're telling me now is you've put more structure yep. around the process whereby you support those people. Yep. I mean, look, the fact that you hired me and that we went pretty deep, we mm-hmm. went as deep in the organization. I mean, we used to have quarterly meetings, all the onboarding, mm-hmm. it was part of the onboarding process, right? Speaks to the fact that you had a desire to support and develop those people. Um, so I, I don't think that's ever not been part of who you are, but I do think there is an evolution. And part of it is because you're just large enough now that you can do it. Right. 
Right. I mean, right. when you're in the bathroom. Right. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you there can't. was no infrastructure. No infrastructure. <laughs> Believe me. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think some of that goes back to my roots of training at ParXL because I'm the biggest advocate for development of people um, always. They shouldn't end their development at any particular time. And you know, they should be okay with saying, I don't know how to do that, but I will, really want to learn. That's culture. Because in a lot of companies, you're not, you're not, it's not praised when you say that you don't know what you're doing. Right. So you have to pretend you know. And we've tried to make it the complete opposite, where people should say, I don't, want to, I don't know how to do this, but I want to try. Right. Right. So now you're in this great position where, um, you know, you've done something that, I mean, I don't even know, you probably know this better than, than anyone. What other companies have an all-women leadership team? What other significant companies in this I don't know. Industry. We talked about it. Yeah. Last I, I heard, and my numbers are probably way dated, that the executive leadership for biopharma device was about 17% women. Uh, we know that STEM degrees, um, when you look at undergraduate STEM, graduate STEM degrees, yep. it's, it's over 52%, I think, now are women versus men. So at some point, the workforce dictate the educational uh, environment dictates that the yep. workforce has to start to shift. Yep. Um, talk to me a little bit about being a mother and running a company and being an executive because I've had a number of guests um, uh, Lori Geary did a great job on this talking about it, how times I was a great mother and not maybe a great executive and other times I was a great executive and maybe not such a good mother but talk to me a little bit about how you've reconciled that you in large part you just started a company so you had greater control but talk to me about your thoughts on that and in that you employ many women who are younger, mm. having their children mm. and you know, navigating that firstborn, secondborn, you know, family. Yep. Talk yep. to me about your views and ideas and, and how you're supporting that. So one thing that we do is, and we started this again during the pandemic, your day, your way. So if you have a doctor's appointment with your kid, whether you're a mother or a father, Lock it out on your calendar and don't let somebody make you change it. Just, you have to have a life. And that's a philosophy that a lot of, a lot of companies didn't have and many still don't. Um, but what I did as a mom was I just, I made sure that when my kids were with me, that I was paying 100% attention to them. Hmm because kids don't necessarily care about the amount of time. You don't have to be with them 24 seven. They care about the quality of the time. Hmm. So that would be probably the biggest thing that I, I would say I did right. And then I didn't, I didn't spend my time cleaning the house. I hired somebody to clean the house. Um, I didn't feel guilty about that. Right. Um, I don't cook. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel guilty about that. So luckily my husband does, or we get, you know, we go out or we t get takeout. But, right. but so many women, they feel like they have to be fantastic at everything. And you don't, but only you do that to yourself. So, I mean- Men that, don't I, do it. Men don't do it. No, they don't. And, and, and so that's why, that's why I always think it's, it's not 
fair to expect that women should have to do it when men's yep. success was largely based on the fact that they didn't have to do a lot of things. Right. They just said, you do that. Right. I got to focus on this. Yeah. But the biggest thing I would say as far as motherhood and, and I started the kid, I started the company when my kids were one and three mm-hmm. or went back to it full time. I spent my time with them not focused on other things and not distracted mm. with them. And they only know me as a business owner. Their, their mom has always been a CEO. And it, it, it is incredibly, it makes me incredibly happy when they, now they're in college, when they have chances to talk about people that they admire as leaders and they reference me. I mean, and my son, my younger son actually will tell me when he does that. Mm. He's taking a business class now at school. And he said, they wanted me to talk about the, the most inspirational leader I knew. And I said, you, mom. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. But that's cool. That's yeah. really cool. But I really think that so many people, they have their kids around them, and they think being in the room with them is what you have to be. But they're not paying attention, or they're resentful. And that's just, that's not value added for anybody. No, it's not for... Um, you know, mother or father, it's not, it's not good. Um, and it, it's, it can be hard too, though, because when you have limited amounts of time, I mean, one of the things I've seen, um, just observing friends, clients, um, sometimes people have a hard time being the parent yep. in those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, because and I think years ago, you and I talked about the challenges of children at certain ages, yeah. right? Yes. We talked about this <laughs> and we don't need to get into that. It never right really now. ends. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, but, but I, I think that sometimes it's hard when you have limited time. I traveled a lot, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, God bless Steph. She was always the one that was mm-hmm. the rock and there. And when I had to take off for, you know, Monday through Friday and, mm-hmm. Um, but she was always there. So the kids didn't always see a lot of me mm-hmm. in their early years. You know, mm-hmm. now my kids would, especially my daughter would say, sometimes we see too much of your dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, I think it's, um, I think it's a hard thing for women. How, so how do you deal with this with your younger people and what kind of things do you do, does the organization do to help women that are having their first child? I know you said, you know, what was the term you used? Your day, your way. Your day, your way. Yeah. I get that. But when you've got a young mom, a demanding job, mm-hmm. clients that, you know, what you guys do is not light work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's regulatory, there's adherence to process protocols, yep. there's response to the agency, yep. and there's lots of money riding on it. There's high visibility. And if you guys mess it up, mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, it's like when you're getting it right, no one cares and you don't get any pats on the back. But when you get it wrong, everybody knows. Yep. And so tell me how... Your, what's your guidance for these young women as they're having children and they're trying to juggle those maybe, dynamics? Maybe they don't want to be full-time. Maybe they want to be part-time. Okay. There are some people who really want that. Other people, it's not as important. But let them, let them be open enough and make the environment accepting enough that they can make choices. 
Um, I, I, I guess I would say that's the biggest thing that we do. Um, and every one of pe- the people on my executive team has a really supportive husband. Mm. So the husbands have made choices to support their wives and be a real partner in the, in the caretaking of the kids and the house and the errands and all that. So in that respect, I think I see that more now um, where the husbands are, it's not an intimidation. It's not, you're not manly enough. And, and I, I even see that with, you know, I have a group of women friends that I'm having dinner with tonight. They're all CEOs of biotech companies. Mm. Their husbands are all the, the main support. Yeah, uh, Kelly Londi talked about that. Um, I haven't done a podcast with Kelly, but I've done a lot of work with her over the years. And she talks about, like, you know, my husband stepped up and yep. he put his career second to mine. Yep. And um, and many other women, uh, Lori, her husband did that when she got, you know, you have to go to Europe, right? You're in a big company. Yep. You have to spend your time in Europe. And when she got that call, he quit his job and went over there and, yep. you know, did what he had to do to support her. Um, you find that time and time again. Yeah. With women that, yeah. that have had success, which is their husbands are willing to play that role. Yeah. I think at the level you're at, at the level uh, in the biopharma device industry, you have to have um, that kind of partnership. Absolutely. Right? Or yeah. else you can't, you know, you have to have the time and game. This industry, you just can't step into these roles. And I would say, as a woman, you have to not pretend that you can do it all. You have to be okay asking for help. And that's where a lot of, I, where I see women that struggle, it's in that. They think that they're supposed to be able to do it all. So here's the thing, going back to the data. If you take women that are typical of the type of women you hire, mm-hmm. highly disciplined, mm-hmm. extraordinary work ethic, mm-hmm. moderate to lower competing scores, they're not aggressive, mm-hmm. but they compete more themselves. Mm-hmm. They put tremendous pressure on themselves to have to do it all. Yep. Right. And yep. so it's genetically why your leadership team, now that it's mature and they're, you know, you've got a leadership team that's in a better place, they've worked through that stuff. Yep. But when you have younger women who are dedicated to their work and they, they work extraordinarily hard and they set goals, and they hold themselves and everybody around them to high standard, well, the highest standard is on themselves. And their internal competing forces them to really push themselves. That creates yeah. stress. True. But when they have role models that are all, and their executive team and their management team who have kids. And we have, we have kids on our, on our team who are like three or four. Mm. So it goes the whole spectrum. My kids are in college, but everybody else's kids are, you know, go down the, down the, um, the list of mm. age. I think that we now have created an environment where it's okay not to expect yourself to be perfect at everything because we're open and we're nurturing. So we talk about that. I mean, my CFO last summer came up with your day, your way, Mm -hmm. hashtag your day, your way. And over and over and over, she said, if you have an appointment, if you have to deal with school, block your calendar, we're okay with that. You have to maintain, you know, the client work, but do it whenever, whenever you can. We're not going to dictate when you do it. You need to write a white paper. We are. You are. We're Good. in the middle of it. Yeah. Good. You need to write a white paper on this. You really do. You need to publish on this because I think it's something that um, that 
companies need to learn how to manage this. You know, it's really interesting now because, you know, I have clients that are saying, we want you back in the office. Mm-hmm. And people are pushing back and saying, no. Mm-hmm. Not just women, just men and women. Yeah. They're saying, we don't need to be in the office. Yep. But I had another client today pull me aside. He's the president of a division of a, a big company. And he said, I don't agree with this work from home because he said, I think, not because not because he doesn't think people can work from home or shouldn't, but he said the nature of our business is that we are a highly strategic collaborative position and role. And it's hard to do that over Zoom. Totally agree. And and he said, so he said, my CEO that I report to with my division is saying we can work from home exclusively. We can be dynamic. We can have opportunities to meet and strategize, but those will be, you know, you know, we're going to get rid of the corporate office. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we're going to have these places where we can go and just meet and be strategic and spend a week and then go home and do our work. And, this this president yeah. of this division saying, yeah. but there's certain things that you need to have like continuity of interaction yeah. over periods of time. Yeah. So we actually doubled the size of our office. I knew you did. I was waiting for you to <laughs> talk about that because you had a lovely um, office before, but you've doubled that. But w- the, one of the reasons we did it was so we would have space so that because when everyone, we have people in 31 states because we hire people where they are, we don't make them move. And that's a big retention tool, mm. but we bring them in. We have monthly home-based days, and if people wanna come in, they can, and we pay for it. We, have, we had quarterly staff meetings, fly everybody in, because I think you need both. Mm. I think you need time to deal with life, but you also need time with your coworkers. We don't mandate people coming in, but we make it so they want to. But you get them together on a more regular basis. Mm-hmm. You expend the money to have them come and mm-hmm. be together. I know yep. we did that with the meetings I used to do. You used to have people coming. They're coming on a regular basis. Yep. We'll schedule a time for you to come in, Kurt. And so that's something you've done since I've known you. You've done that. Because it's worth it. It's one of the things that tethers them to the company. It mm. makes them feel like, it's a family. I can't wait to see the people that I care about. It's very much, a, it's ve- that's the culture. It's very much, we have to be, in order for us to be competitive with biotech, we have to have a better work environment than mm-hmm. biotech. So it's one of the things we spend an enormous amount of time and energy on is making it a really good culture. And it's a tough thing to compete with because they have lots of money. Yeah, Right. exactly. Right, and, right. and they could be doing a lot of the same types of things. They could be. But they're not out in front of it yet, many of them. Some are, right. but not all of them right. are. Well, they also have investors to answer to. Right. It's, look, and, I think a privately held company, um, you know, I, I work with a few biotech companies that are privately held, and their CEOs will say, I have the luxury of not having to investors breathing down my back right. or the street telling me what to do every quarter. Right. And so if I have something that's worthy of pursuing, I can take the time mm-hmm. and do it properly as mm-hmm. opposed to doing it to mm-hmm. appease a financial pressure right. or timeline pressure right. or analyst and, pressure. And in, in some respects, that's a luxury mm. that we don't have to do that. It's, it just goes back to the, you know, the original 
I didn't really know how to deal with investors, so I didn't want to. <laughs> and I still don't. Well, I just talked to I just talked to uh, somebody I've known for 35 years, and um, he was retired, and now he said, you know, I've spent some time, you know, doing the babysitting the grandchildren thing, and I sort of want to get back in the game a little bit more. And uh, and so he said, but I'm not sure I want to sit on boards. Mm. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I'm not sure I want to sit on a board with VCs mm. because a lot of it is by, the, it's all based on the financial and not mm-hmm. necessarily on the, on the quality of a company mm-hmm. and the quality of a solution. And yep. so um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out now. Um, we're going to have, through AI, we're going to have a greater ability to understand you know, the, the true benefit mm-hmm. of a therapy, mm-hmm. right? Or, mm-hmm. or a diagnostic or a device. And I think that that knowledge is going to reshape what many companies do and how they do it. I mean, you've got great insight to this on the regulatory side. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's still a little bit early, but I think everybody's extremely interested. Um, there's a huge amount of potential. Mm. Um, in the discovery area, it will probably be a little bit easier. It's gonna be really difficult when it gets to the, to, to the development space mm. because until FDA approve something that's been done in a different way. Nobody wants to be first. Right. So being innovative on the regulatory path is always challenging Yeah. because you've got to convince an agency. Well, I have have an old friend of mine, um, Ira Lawrence used to be the chief medical officer for Fujisawa. And he said, when you try to become innovative with Mm -hmm. the agency, you have to first help them understand they have to, you have to get them really comfortable and help them to understand why this new path mm-hmm. will work. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's a lot of work because they, they know what they know. Mm-hmm. And now you're introducing something that they're not familiar with. And he said, it's, and you can see why they have to take great care in understanding that. But he goes, it's not easy to, to, to show to them this new path. But in COVID, everybody had a really, really good chance. So if they didn't take the chance to try something different, they've missed the opportunity. Because FDA has been pretty open with how are you going to do this differently than you mm. did with patients showing up to a clinic. And, and do you think we, we seized on that opportunity at the regulatory level or that we missed it? And Some companies have seized on it, but not, not a tremendous amount. Okay, so there's... Like anything, There's 20, 20% got it right and yeah. 80% did. Yeah. There's still a lot of work to do, but there's at least a huge amount of interest and a huge amount of focus. Are there great models now that you think that could be used as examples of what could be done? They've been around a long time. Okay. It's that small biotechs are really hesitant to take those kinds of risks. That's really what, that's the challenge. And that's that's one of the things that I've been getting involved in is this decentralized trials alliance um, to try to get the small biotechs to recognize that there's a way that they can do it Mm. because they're going to have to. COVID has really changed patients' willingness to go to the doctor. So we have to get behind that and make that work. So that's, Mm. that's one of my other big special projects that I'm engaged with. (laughs) So talk to me a little bit about balance, because I think one of the things that I've seen probably evolve in the time I've known you 
is that you've created more balance in your life? Um, well, now that I don't have project work that I'm specifically doing, um, it's still, uh, an, a daily, what's my priorities? How am I going to make sure I don't work 20 hours? Um, is this okay to let it go? Mm. I have to have that conversation with myself every single day. Even now. Even now. You don't get to where you are without driving yourself. Like, totally. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm up, you know, an hour before I'm going to exercise every morning. And what I'm doing is answering emails because it's, I'm really fresh and I make my list and I, you know, tackle it. Um, it, it doesn't suddenly, you don't suddenly decide, well, we're here. I'm just going to like let them do it. I can't, mm. I can't do that. So, but I am more balanced because I have more people to ha that know what they're doing to help. Mm -hmm. And I let them. Yeah, that's good too. That's good that you, you how about, um, you know, you just told me, you know, you're trying to get back into the work swing because you just got back from vacation. Yeah. Do you spend, do you get a fair amount of time where you take off and? Um, well, we have, we have an unlimited vacation policy. People don't use it like they should. So in some ways, I'm trying to be a little bit of an example. Mm. But, I mean, I've also worked for the company for 20, 20 plus years. Right. So I, I, took, I took two weeks off. I just took a week and a half off. I went to a place with no internet. They only had internet in a couple places in the, on the resort. So I made sure that I cleaned out everything from my inbox that I mm. possibly could. Because I didn't want to be anxious about what was there. Right. But except for the hour that I spent cleaning out my inbox, I wasn't thinking about work. That's great. It's really hard to get back from that, though. <laughs> yeah, I found Steph and I took a couple weeks ago hiking out in Sedona. And, um, and when you're not, when you totally just walk away from work for two weeks and you're hiking and biking and canoeing and doing all those things, um, sometimes it's hard to... To get your head back into the... To turn your brain back on. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm suffering from right now. But uh, so I'll take well, the weekend and then turn it back on on Monday. Yeah, I think you'll be fine. I think you've been there before. You'll know how to get back into it. Um, this has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. I really have enjoyed chatting with you and catching up. It's been a while since we sat I know. down. It's been years because of COVID. Definitely. And, um, but, you know, I, I, you know, I... Also, I'm going to thank you, too, for the early work you did with the IBE. You were in those first strategic meetings, and we were in, you know, all getting together and trying to decide, like, yep. what is it that we do to, to change and affect translation? You've been wonderful in supporting that all these years. So thank you. very thankful of that. And there's a bunch of young people downstairs, um, and there are a bunch of people out there uh, all around the world that are benefiting from this, have starting companies and employing people and yeah. developing solutions and I think uh, we can all be pretty excited about that vision that Absolutely. the hundred of us had way back in 2016 is, is, is actually having an impact. That's so great. I thank you for your part in that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the compliment because it, it was really good work and we really needed it when we did that. So it was really beneficial for us. Well, uh, safe travels. Thank you. And okay. Until the next time, I look forward to our next conversation.